Gracious Bonar gave us a wonderful sermon in that hymn, did he not? It's uh, wonderful that we have that gift of, of hymns from people of old who've, uh, who've left the gospel and song for us. And I hope it blessed your heart even as you sang it. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to First uh, John chapter 5. We'll be looking at the... Uh, first five verses of this concluding chapter of this little letter. You'll recall, uh, as we looked at it some time ago, the beginning of First uh, John opened with an emphasis on the church as those who have been brought together in union with God and with one another. He uses the term that we translate fellowship there, and, and I argued that, that fellowship is a little weak as an English word to really convey uh, what's meant there. Uh, when, when we think fellowship, we think, uh, you know, friendly conversation and maybe something to eat while you're talking. But, but the meaning behind this word that we're translating fellowship in First John is much deeper and broader at the same time. It's, it's, a, it's a communion together. It, it, it is often illustrated in Scripture by, by sharing a meal together. There's a significance to the fact that we'll share a sacrament, which is a, a, an emblematic meal together here. And so there's that idea of breaking bread together and being one, especially in the ancient world. You didn't you didn't need except with your friends and family, those with whom you had a relationship with. And so there's that idea of communion. There's that idea of, uh, of being in the company with one another in a significant way. Uh, so, so fellowship conveys the idea almost of a brotherhood. Uh, maybe you could think, could think in terms of fiction of uh, J.R. Tolkien's uh, Fellowship of the Ring. Okay, the, this, this group of, of Middle Earth citizens, beings, who had covenanted together to destroy the ring of power in order to bring freedom to Middle Earth. And, and they'd pledged their lives to that. So, some of them die in the course of that. Pledged their loyalty to one another, a loyalty that, that crossed all kinds of divisions among them. That's, that's what you want to have in mind here. A fellowship of the king, as it were, of those who have who've sworn allegiance to Christ the king, and in doing so, sworn allegiance to one another as well. So, so John is writing to those who are, who are in that fellowship. Uh, maybe the closest thing in, 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 uh, for an illustration to that is, is men who have been in battle together. They've served in the military and they've seen conflict together. There is something about that life and death experience that, that, that brings a unity that, that is oftentimes the most significant connection with other human beings that those men ever have. That they... They learn a trust in one another that, that goes so far as to trust another person with your life. Uh, that they, they learn in obedience to a common authority that is unquestioned. And, and, 
And they also develop a, a real love for one another that moves them to be willing to lay down their lives for their brothers in arms. That's the kind of, that's the kind of relationship I want you to think about. When you think about the fellowship that, that John speaks about in this letter. And the Apostle John indeed focused on those three elements that I just mentioned. Obedience, faith, and love as the characteristics of this fellowship of the king, of the church, uh, of God's people together. And, and, and he's, he's shown us that those are, are interwoven. They're linked with one another. You can't have one in a true sense without the other. And that's going to be reflected in our text for uh, this morning as uh, John brings his uh, letter to a close. He returns to some of these themes that we saw in the very beginning of the letter as well as throughout it. So let's uh, hear today, especially uh, God's word in 1 John chapter 5, the first five verses. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whomever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Who are you in communion with, in fellowship with, in an eternal sense? You are, if you hear this word in faith, if you heard this word in faith just now, you are those who are believing. That verb believing in the first verse there of uh, chapter 1 there is, is usually translated in uh, just a simple present form, whoever believes. But, but it's actually the, a present participle, and so the, the most accurate way to translate it would be those who are believing. And you can see how that sort of gives you the idea of, of a continuation of, of a persevering in faith, of a going on. It's not just that you're believing in this moment and you might not the next moment. Those who are believing, those who are believing are those who are in this fellowship. And in fact, you may, may remember uh, back in earlier in the letter when, when John was talking about false teachers, those who had been, who'd brought false teaching into the church and proved to be hypocritical believers, he said that the sign that they're not of you is, is seen in the fact that they left. They did not continue believing. Okay, they're not believing anymore. So, so this, this idea of, of believing is central, of, of a continuing Believing, whoever believes, whoever is believing. But it's not just a believing in whatever. Okay, don't confuse this with a faith in faith itself. Okay, it, 
if the content of your faith is not correct, it does you no good. And we know that from common experience, don't we? You have to be careful who you trust. Just the fact that you're trusting doesn't do you any good in the real world. Unless you're trusting in someone or something reliable. And so John goes on. You've already noticed in our text, right? Those who are believing that. Okay? See that word that in your text? Well, what is it we believe? Well, there has to be a content to that faith. And so he says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, is the anointed one. Now, John and the other apostles didn't admit this word Christ. Okay, it's simply a translation of the Hebrew word for anointed, which you see uh, transliterated in, in the English word Messiah. So Messiah, Christ, anointed one, those are all the same term. So the New Testament doesn't invent this term. This, this is there in the Hebrew scriptures, going back a very long way. The idea of an anointed one to whom we would owe our allegiance. One of the beautiful places where it's, it's talked about is the Song of Hannah. You remember the mother of Samuel. She sings this in her song. The adversaries of the Lord, she uses there the name Yahweh or Jehovah, shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ. Notice how it's said in parallel with his king. Okay, the king anointed by God. We see that in Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, Yahweh, and his anointed, his chosen king. And of course, that psalm ends with, uh, with God laughing at his enemies who will be crushed like pottery with a rod of iron. Uh, Daniel speaks of the anointed one, chapter 9. So we have an example from the prophets. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and, re and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, a ruler. He uses a generic term for ruler there, but he says the, an anointed one. There shall be six, seven weeks. And then uh, skipping down a bit after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. Here's that element of the anointed one being cut off for the sake of his people. So we have both of those presented in the Old Testament. We don't have time to look at those, those two images in the Old Testament of the anointed one as the one who would rule, but also the one who would be cut off for the sake of his people, as seen, for instance, in Isaiah 53. Now, that anointed one, title and identity, Jesus himself took for himself. So, so we're not adding something here. The apostles are not adding something to what Jesus said. Jesus explicitly claimed to be this anointed one. You remember that scene where he comes back to his hometown, Nazareth, and he goes to the, syna to the synagogue, and he's sort of the uh, local boy uh, done good, and so they uh, call him to, to say a little something in the synagogue. And, and this is what he does. He... he 
goes to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. I'm sure he probably had this memorized, but he's reading from the scripture. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, there's our key word, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, Yahweh's favor on his people. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. All the eyes of an the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am the anointed one Isaiah is talking about. And you all remember that that ended with rejection and an attempted lynching on the part of his friends and neighbors. Jesus asserted, in fact, that, that the scriptures of Israel as a whole were all about him. He, he, he says to his enemies in John chapter 5, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. If it's just my word that's saying I'm the anointed one, well, that's not enough. But, he says, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. You have the witness of God the Father. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What an irony. You search the scriptures because you think this is your way to eternal life, and you're missing the most important message of your own scriptures. They're about me. They point to me. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. The very scriptures that you, you claim to be trusting in will condemn you. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The content of the church's faith, then, is right here in abbreviated form. Jesus is the Christ. John's asserted that throughout this epistle. You can't accept this, this epistle as God's word and not get the message here. 1 John uh, 1, 3. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Anointed One. Chapter 2, verse 1, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the righteous anointed one. Chapter 2, verse 22, who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. If you deny Christ as the anointed one, you deny the Father as well. Chapter 3, verse 23, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. That is, place your faith in him. That's the significance of that expression, in his name. Whenever you see scripture using that, that formulation here, it's, it's putting your faith in that person. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. 
For this you know the Spirit of God, he says in chapter 4, verse 2. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So, to go back to our text, verse 1 of chapter 5, John has, has answered the question, who you are, in the eternal fellowship of the King by identifying you as those who are believing that Jesus is the Christ. Now, we can note that he also answers in this verse the question of how you came to believe. How did you come to believe? How is it that you're in that condition of believing right now? Well, John's answer is that everybody who believes has been born of God. See that in, in verse 1 right there. We've been given birth by God. Now, some translations use the term uh, is born here. And, and again, that's not exactly, exactly conveying the, the original thought. The, the, the original thought actually is the past participle. So we have a present participle, those who are believing in Jesus Christ, Jesus as the Christ. And then we have a past participle, have been born of God. Do you see what's clearly conveyed there? Okay, by being born again, you are brought to faith. Okay, it is a work of God. Jesus made this point in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, you remember? He says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He doesn't say, Nicodemus, you need to do this work or that work. Uh, you need to sign a pledge card for me. You need to make some profession of faith publicly. No, he says you need to be born again. He goes on to emphasize it again. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You can't even see it. You can't enter it. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He, he's, he's saying, use your logic here. Use your brain. Okay, Physical birth happens through physical means. Spiritual birth happens through spiritual means. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Entrance into the kingdom of God comes only through being born of the Spirit. In the same way that spiritual birth in our text precedes believing, so... The necessary foundation, it's the necessary foundation for being obedient to God. Okay, you have to be born again before you can be obedient to God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 29. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In like manner, being born of God comes before overcoming sin. 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. He's been given a new spiritual DNA, and that's going to be evident in his life. Continuing in the same vein, being born of the Spirit necessarily comes before loving God and one another. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. 
and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, John's not the only one to emphasize this. Okay, it's throughout the apostles' teaching. Here's Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once were, walked. Dead people can't do anything for themselves. You were dead in sin, he said. You were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We could almost say here, you're spiritual zombies. You're alive physically, but spiritually you are the walking dead. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. In fact, he goes on to say, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now in the last part of, uh, of this verse, the apostle reminds us of the real consequence of being born of God. Those born of God naturally love him as father, and love for the father is inseparable from love for those born of him. Do you see that in the text? Everyone who loves the father loves whomever has been born of him. Okay, your love for the Father moves you to love his children. And so there's a love for God and a love for one another that he's been emphasizing throughout, throughout his letter. Now, moving on to verse 2, uh, his, his reasoning here, his, his logic is a little bit unusual, but he reflects the way he continually intertwines these themes of obedience, uh, faith, and love. Here he shifts from who we are Okay, he's answered the question, who are you, in verse 1. Now he's going to give you the answer to the question, what do you know? What can you bank on? What can you count on? What do you know as one who has been born again? You're, if you're going to live the Christian life, it's got to start with thinking correctly. So look for those passages where, where something is emphasized that we know. We've got one right here. We know. That's going to be the governing Verb for verses two through four. It, it all is an expression of this we know. Now, what is it that, that we should know? We know what will enable us to conquer and be victorious. That's where he's going to wind up in our text. Okay, we're going to wind up in verse five in our text with victory. So what do we know that's going to give us victory spiritually? Well, first, know, know that loving God and his commandments is the way to, to love one another. Obeying God's commandments in scripture is the way to love the children of God because God's commandments always show us what is good. So, so your, your instruction book for how to love one another is God's word, his, his commandments. Uh, for instance, we see a very practical application of that in Romans chapter 13, beginning of verse 8. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. Okay, this is the only debt you should carry, Paul's saying. The debt of love to each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
of the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this world word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And, and we could go on to a number of other passages that I won't take time to go to right now. But notice something before we leave this, that this is not a feeling. Uh, John Stott points out in his commentary on this text, text that this love is not an emotion. It is a moral commitment. Okay? It's not a feeling. John is not calling you to generate some kind of nice feelings toward people. He's calling you to make a moral commitment to do that which is loving. John's already given us a very concrete example of that, hasn't he? Back in chapter 3. He said, if you say you love God and your brother has a need for the necessities of life and you've got the ability to meet that need and you don't do anything for him, you're not loving. No matter your emotional state, you're not loving because this love is a moral commitment that leads to actions, to doing something. As another reminder in verse 3, uh, we read that the love for God is inseparable from doing his commands. Those two go together. See that in verse 3? And Jesus himself, again, emphasized the same truth. He said to his disciples in John 14, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And, of course, this is totally in harmony with God's word in the Old Testament. Again, Jesus is not bringing something new into the equation here. This is the very heart of what it means to be the people of God in the Old Testament as well. In that famous passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where, where Israel is reminded of the covenant that God has made with them. Uh, Moses writes, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them. You see the moral commitment there? He's given you this. You're to do it. You're to keep it. Keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them. In the space of just a few verses here, he's told, us, told them repeatedly, it's all about the doing of the commands. And so then when he, he talks about that, listen to the terms he uses. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Whereas the doing of God's commands begins, it begins with loving them. You're going to do that which you love to do. And he goes on to say, I want them to be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your, go on your gates. If you love God's word, you're going to want to learn it and teach it and live by it. It's going to become as familiar to you as the back of your hand. I think that's what he means when he refers to, to binding it on your hand. He, he wants you to know it like you know the back of your hand. He, he wants to, you to know it 
like the face of a loved one that you know well. He wants you to know it like you know your own doorway. He, he wants that kind of, of a, an affection of a commitment. And so we see that reflected throughout, uh, throughout the scriptures. Uh, in the Psalms, especially, we see this kind of language. Psalm 1, uh, blessed is the man who does what? For his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He, he delights in it, and so he wants to think about it over and over again. Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Psalm 119, 35. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. And we could go on with other illustrations from the Old Testament. But remember, this is also the motive that Jesus had. Remember, he said, I, this is from John 14 again, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. My love for the Father is shown because I'm always doing his will. And he's calling us into that kind of a life as well. To love his will, to love his word, to love his law, and to do it. And Jesus says, now, now I want you to know, this is not a heavy burden. So that's why he says in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all who, are labor and who labor and are heavy laden. You're weighed down. You're weighed down with cares, with anxiety, with striving after this or that or the other thing. Come to me, and I'll give you rest. And what does he say? Well, you'll kick back and do nothing. No, in fact, he says, take my yoke upon you. The yoke, of course, is what the oxen wore to pull the plow. Take my yoke upon you, he says, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm telling you that the burdens of Christ, the law of God, uh, that which God commands, it is light compared to the burden that your own selfish heart will put on you. Compared to the burden that other people will want to weigh you down with and their expectations. Other people are far harder to please than God. Matthew, Matthew 23, Jesus makes that point. He says the scribes and Pharisees, they're in a position of authority. And he says they preach. They say the right things, but they don't practice it. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They're very good at coming up with what everybody else should do. Luke chapter 11, he speaks to lawyers, and, and here lawyers means not not lawyers in secular law, but lawyers in the sacred law. Experts in biblical law. That's who he's talking about. Woe to you, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. The burdens that sinful human beings lay on themselves and others are indeed crushing. But the law of God by comparison, is light. It is an easy yoke. So, verse 2 and verse 
three than we've looked at. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. Now we're continuing the same sentence, okay, in verse four, even though your translation may put a period there at the end of verse three. It's really all one sentence governed by that verb, we know, okay? So what else do we know? Verse four, we know that everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. We know that everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. The word is victory here. Those who are believing in Christ Jesus, because they have been born of God, can know that theirs is victory over the world. Now, of course, this term world is used in a number of different ways in scripture. It's actually the Greek word that we get the word cosmos from. And so it can mean the physical world. It can mean um, the people in the world. Luke chapter 2, we read that uh, Caesar decreed that all the world should be taxed. Well, obviously, he's not talking about the plants and the animals. He's talking about the people and specifically the people within his realm, obviously not. So, so the world, word world is used uh, in, in different ways. Uh, John himself has used it in a different way in, in chapter 2 when he spoke of Jesus being the propitiation for the sins of his people and not for ours only, he says, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, Christ is not turning away the wrath of God from every human being. Okay, He, he is... He is being a propitiation. He is the propitiation for his people, for their sins. And, and so when John uses the term world here, he's saying, now, now don't think that this is something that's parochial, that this is just confined to your little group or, or your particular ethnic group. Okay, he intends for his church to embrace all ethnicities, people all over the world. So that's what he is conveying by the idea of world here. Well, now in our text, he's using world obviously in a negative sense. And this is a frequent way that, that uh, the world is used in, in uh, the New Testament. So you need to keep your eye out and use the context to figure out what definition for world applies. This is the same definition he's using here as he used back in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So it's easy to figure out from the context there. World, in this case, means all that is opposed to God. All that is, is rejecting his law. Okay? All, all that considers his commands burdensome, to use the contrast to the verse that we just looked at a minute ago. So that's what's in mind with world here. But, but notice another thing in the way that he used it back then. Look again at his definition in chapter 2, verse 15. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life. Now, it's, it's interesting, it is, isn't it, that that's all stuff that begins here, in your heart, isn't it? So, he, he's not speaking as if, well, evil is out there. 
And it, if you just get away from that stuff out there, you'll be fine. I mean, that, that was the problem with the monastic and the hermitage movements. You know, they, they thought they were to withdraw from the world in a social or a physical sense. That's not what John's talking about here, is it? I mean, the desires of the flesh, my own selfish desires, that's in me. Now, it may be for stuff out there, and it often is for stuff out there, material things, or relationships, or experiences. Okay, but the desires right here, the, the desires of the eyes, that, that is that which is appealing to me. Okay, th that which I lust after, that's what's in view here. Pride of life. Okay, all, all these are inner things, aren't they? Manifested in our relationship with things and people outside of us. But he's really talking about an inner battle, isn't he? You win the victory that he's talking about here. First of all, right here in your heart. Then it's lived out in your life. To go back to uh, Ephesians chapter 2, he, 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 he te Paul tells us in chapter 2 that, that before you were united with Christ by faith, when you were dead in trespasses and sins, the, the way you lived out your life reflected that. You were following the course of this world, the way of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in sons of disobedience. So that's the old life. And, and anything that would, would cause you, a person to, to cling to worldly things and to deny love of Christ, that's what he's talking about here. And, and so Paul talks about the break that happens for those who are born of God. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Far be it from me to boast, don't I have anything to brag about, he's saying, except in the cross of, Christ, cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Okay, again, we know, John's saying, that all those who have been born of God overcome or have the victory over the world. We were once enslaved by that, but the Holy Spirit has, has freed us from that, has given us life in Christ, and through the power of the Spirit has set us free to follow the will of God. And so, so, so Paul is saying, I, I've been united with Christ by faith. And so when he was crucified, when he died, took the wrath of God for my sin, I died in that act. I died to the world. It no longer has a hold on me. Because he paid the price. He turned away God's wrath. And so I am no longer a slave to that sin like I was before. I have a new life in him. And so to go back to our text, John says, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes, has the victory over the world. And he repeats the same idea. In fact, he repeats it three times in these two verses, doesn't he, in our text. Second time, he uses the past tense. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Again, he's using the past tense there to convey the idea of certainty. It is without doubt. There is no one 
who is born of God, who does not experience this victory. Now, I'm not saying that you win every battle from day to day with temptation. What I'm saying is God has called you to victory, to overcoming, to being victorious over that which would keep you from loving and obeying him. You have already overcome it, in a sense, he says. That this may be a slight throwback to, to what he said earlier in the letter about the, the church that he's writing to is overcome the false teachers. And, and that would tie in with what he says then at the end of verse 4, wouldn't it? Because what is it that's the victory? What is the key to the victory? It's your faith. It's your belief. It's gone right back to the first verse in our text, isn't it? Those who are believing have the victory through their faith. And, and again, we could look at many texts to address that. Uh, texts from Paul as well as John that guarantee the victory to those who are believing, those who persevere in faith. Go, go to Romans chapter 8 uh, for, for that as well. Uh, again, John's already used the past tense earlier in, the, in this letter in speaking to young men, uh, young adults, right back in chapter 2. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome, you have gained the victory over the evil one. And he repeats it in the next verse. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. That's where your strength comes from. And you have overcome the wicked one. You have overcome, you have been victorious over the evil one. You are destined for victory. We've got a whole list of verses that talk about the conqueror in Revelation, especially in the letters to the churches. You might want to go back and look at those. As, they hold, as, as the Spirit is holding up for you an image of the one who is victorious in Christ. But I want to get to verse 5 before we, be, we close, because... He asks a rhetorical question now that takes us back to the first verse, doesn't he? Who is it that overcomes, that has the victory over the world, except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So he's gone full circle back to his first verse in our text. So the question right now is, are you right now believing? Not did you believe sometime before. Now, did you make some profession of faith or do some religious act that identified you uh, publicly as a Christian? That, that's not the question. The question is, are you believing now? It's not a matter of, well, I intend to. Sometime I'm going to get, all, get around to getting my spiritual life right. Now, the question is, are you believing right now? You can't relive the past. You don't have a hold of the future. All you've got is this moment. Are you believing? Are you among those who are believing that Jesus is the Christ? If you are, if that is your affirmation, then that changes absolutely everything. But because that believing means you've been born again as a child of God, and you live in allegiance to him. Your faith, your faith empowers and directs your life. Nothing less will do. 
that's the kind of belief he's talking about. That's the kind of belief he's encouraging. Again, we could go to Hebrews chapter 10 and moving into verses 11, uh, chapter 11. Uh, go back and read that sometime. And, and there in that letter, uh, the writer of Hebrews is basically telling the believers there, persevere in faith. Keep on believing. I know you've been through hard times, he said, and you've remained faithful, but you need to continue. You need to persevere in the faith. When I was a boy, I was, I was a fast runner, short distances. I, I only liked to run the 25-yard dash, 50-yard dash. Once I, especially once I became ill, I didn't have the stamina for, for a longer run. I could still be pretty fast. But the Christian life, I, I learned a long time ago, somebody told me, the Christian life is not a dash. It's not a 25-yard dash or a 50-yard dash. It's a lifelong marathon. What counts in a marathon is that you persist, that you persevere, that you don't give up. That's what we're called to. And we read that in, in chapter 11 of Hebrews as we read over and over again, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, those who went before you experienced successes and survived failures. Both are in that list. Okay, we tend to think about just the good times, the, the outward victories. But, but he says those who who were persecuted, those who died for their faith, those who, who suffered, they did that by faith as well. And they gained the victory. And so he, he closes that section in Hebrews 12, remember, pointing us to Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Those who are believing keep their attention on him, not on themselves and not on others. And so he says, you keep your eyes on Christ. You keep looking to Jesus, the author, the beginner of your faith, and the end of your faith. You remember he uses that language, the, the author and the finisher of your faith. You keep your eyes on him. Remember that he persevered for the sake of the prize set before him, for the joy set before him. Live Live in faith, not looking to the present for your satisfaction and meaning and joy, but looking to an eternal, eternal destiny, a lasting meaning and joy that, that nothing in this world can match. That's what we're called to is by John's letter here. Let's pray together. Only Father, I pray that we, along with all your people, would be victors in you. We know that we can't rely on our own strength for this, Lord. We are far too weak for that. As soon as we become confident in ourselves, we're going to fall. But we know that as long as we depend on you, as long as we put our faith in you, that we will be victorious. So we pray, Lord, for that victory. Help us to encourage one another in that. Uh, help us to en encourage one another to, to keep our eyes fixed on you from day to day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.